Hi guys, welcome to Uncomfortable. The goal here is to have honest conversations about the issues dividing America. And great news for you listeners, all of our episodes are now available on the TuneIn app. All the episodes available there five days early. So download the TuneIn app and listen for free. I'm very pleased to introduce our guest this week. Zach Ebrahim joins us live in studio. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So it's impossible to tell your story without first telling the story of your father. In very short summary, I will. Your dad was uh, El Said Nocer. He was notorious for uh, all the wrong reasons because he was the basically the first sort of Muslim terrorist to commit murder on U.S. soil, right, in 1990. Yes. Um, and you were seven years old at the time. He was later uh, also convicted as a co-conspirator in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Uh, that's correct. Well, more more accurately, he was uh, convicted in the landmark bombing trial for the plot to bomb several landmarks around New York City. But he was involved with all of the men who were also involved in the, the World Trade Center bombing. Gotcha. And we should clarify right off the top, you have since um, rejected all the ideals upon which your father conducted those actions. You now have written a book about it. You preach um, and do a lot of talking and speaking about tolerance and peace. And that is the context in which we've invited you here today. Is yes. that right? Yes, it is. Right. So as I mentioned, we like to talk about sort of how people come to believe whatever it is they believe to be true. For you, that started very early in your childhood. So tell me about that. What was it like to grow up being you? Well, I hope you have enough time. Um, you know, growing up, uh, I had a relatively normal childhood. Um, you know, we were a Muslim families, lived growing, uh, you know, being raised in America. So I knew we weren't your stereotypical American family, but for the most part, we were, you know, pretty stable. Um, my father was a very humorous man. He was a very loving man. I mean, I never had any doubts that he loved my family. Um, it really wasn't until, I'd say, maybe a year before he went to prison that... He started spending more time with the blind Sheikh Omar Abdurrahman and, and many of the men who were involved in the bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993. And, mm -hmm. um, he would often take me to the mosque in Brooklyn where the blind Sheikh spoke. And, um, you know, he just became, I think, more impatient, quicker to anger. Um, he was very frustrated, I think, by American foreign policy, particularly in the Middle East, especially being from Egypt, uh, where he was born and raised. I mean... Unfortunately, the United States has a very long history of supporting some pretty terrible dictators and under the guise of democracy in the Middle East, Hosni Mubarak being an example of that, the president, former president of Egypt. Um, so your father was born and raised in Egypt, Yes. Right? And he came to the States as an adult, as a young man. Correct, yes. Um, and became a citizen, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. you and your siblings were born and raised here Correct. their entire lives, yes, right? Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. So you, I mean, this is all very young, you all you were very young when a lot of this happened. Were you aware of your father's beliefs that young? I'm trying to think when I'm that young, you don't really know what people stand for. Sometimes it just doesn't process. But your whole worldview is really just sort of constructed around your parents. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when you're being taught the things that you're taught by your parents, you don't ask if it's right or wrong. You just assume that your parents have your best interest at heart. And, right. Um, you know, for that year before he went to prison, he was taking me to the shooting range, which was being surveilled by the FBI uh, with the other men and, and teaching me how to fight, presumably with the intention of going to Afghanistan or, or somewhere else to fight uh, what they would have considered uh, infidels. Or, um, and, you know, just uh, in general, 
having me be around men like the blind sheikh who advocated for violence against Western society and, um, and, and, and really anyone who didn't fit into a very narrow idea of what it meant to them to be a good Muslim. What was that narrow idea? Like specifically, what were you taught? Um, in in hatred of, of basically anyone who didn't believe in the exact same um, kind of extremist tenets, uh, this, this interpretation of Islam that they all followed, mm-hmm. um, that, that Jews were the enemy, um, you know, gay people were not just evil, but they were actively trying to make me evil so that I would go to hell with them. I mean, just those kinds of, uh, those kinds of lessons. Were those things... I'm just curious how those came about. Did he just take you to the mosque and let you listen to it and absorb it? Were they explicit lessons that were passed down? Like, what was the sort of the place of significance of some of those conversations? Well, a lot of it was at the mosque. Um, you know, a lot of times I would just sit there quietly while the men all sat in a circle and, and had discussions about, um, you know, uh, as I said, American foreign policy or even religious interpretation. Right. A lot of it was in Arabic. Uh, and my Arabic was not that strong as a six and seven year old in the mm-hmm. U.S. So, um, you know, oftentimes when he would wake me up for the first prayer in the morning for Fajr prayer, uh, after prayer he would sit me down and, and try to, you know, extol these ideas on me. Were you? I mean, you're so young at that point, but were you allowed to question them? Was this a thing that was sort of we can talk about this, or was it all the information was sort of coming one way? I, I never really felt like he was trying to force it on me but when you're that young I, I'm not sure that you need it to be forced on you you just kind of right take what your parents teach you and, and accept it as truth right I mean normal is what it's defined as around you exactly. right and you're sort of before the age where you start questioning everything Absolutely. that your parents present to you um, tell me a little bit about your mom because what I've read about her fascinates me she was a, a convert mm-hmm. right um, raised in Pennsylvania yep Pittsburgh PA and then later converted to Islam and then met and married your father very soon after, right? What That's was right. her role in your family? Well, she, uh, she converted to Islam in her early 20s. Um, she was born and raised Catholic in, in Pittsburgh, and um, she basically lost her faith. Uh, she, she would tell me this story all the time about how she went to her priest and, and was asking him questions about the Trinity. She didn't quite understand how the Trinity worked. And mm-hmm. every time he gave her an answer, she had another question until he got so frustrated that he just yelled at her, if you can't believe, then you have no faith at all. And she said she left the church that day knowing that she was no longer Catholic. Wow. Um, so she began this journey trying to find some ideology that fit with the way she saw the world. And um, and she said she found an old dusty book in the Carnegie Library about Islam and started reading. And, and that led her to the mosque in Pittsburgh, um, where she actually met my father the night that she converted to Islam. Uh, She was in the process of learning about the religion and and considering conversion for a few months. Mm -hmm. And um, the night that she was going to say the Shahada, the Declaration of Faith, um, they asked her if she wouldn't mind going upstairs and saying her Shahada in front of the prayer study that was going on. And she was nervous, but she said, sure. And, um, And she went upstairs and she locked eyes with this man, she said, who had very green eyes and just looked so Egyptian and um, said her shahada and, you know, went home. A few days later, she got a phone call from her friend Semya, who had been helping her through this whole process, mm-hmm. saying that one of the men from the prayer study would like to get together with you and see if you would be interested in marriage. I mean, uh, 
there's not a whole lot of dating that goes on. Right. Like people <laughs> kind of meet together, chaperoned a few times, and decide if you know they want to make a go of it. So that's what they did. They met and uh, decided they were going to try to be married. And I think a few weeks later they were. Your, did your mother ever tell you, or have you ever talked to her, about what it was about Islam that drew her in? And I'm asking this in the context of the things that your father then later engaged in, which are so contrary to so many of the core tenets. And I wonder how that kind of set itself up in your family dynamic. But did you ever talk to her about that? I, I, she converted? I have. Yeah. Um, you know, she, she converted. She, it just it seemed to make sense to her. And one of the experiences she tells me about all the time is before she even really knew anything about Islam, uh, but she knew she was no longer a Catholic. She wanted to pray to God, and she wasn't exactly sure how to do it. And mm-hmm. She thought to myself, well, first of all, I have to be clean. So she went and took a shower and uh, came back out, and, and uh, she recalled the nuns in her Catholic school, how they were all covered up, and she thought, you know, I should be covered up. So she covered up most of her body, and uh, and she got down on her knees and 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 started to pray. And when she read about Islam and how you're supposed to pray, um, she was shocked. She saw so so many similarities to how she naturally thought one should be connected to God and, and the process in which Muslims pray to mm-hmm. God. Um, and I think that was probably one of the things that really stuck with her. It seemed um, fortuitous or uh, a sign from a greater you know, power perhaps. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what allured her to it. Um, and when she went to the mosque, she said she was so surprised. Uh, my sister, who she had from a previous marriage, um, went with her to the mosque when she went, wanted to inquire about Islam. And she said the men just loved my sister. And she said it was so contrary to the stereotypes that you hear about Muslim men being like tough guys who are just very stoic and she said they were like little kids that like, just loved playing with her, and that was something that endeared her very much to the community. And mm-hmm. I think that's those things were had a lot to do with why she became a Muslim. You, um, I should also mention, you've written a book about mm-hmm. your life story, um, uh, and you've talked a lot about the details of what it was like to grow up uh, with your father and, and, and how things kind of unfolded in front of you. When you're seven years old, in 1990 is when things really start to come to a head to some degree. That's the year that uh, your father murders um, a sort of ultra-nationalist rabbi who's the founder of the Jewish Defense League. And um, you find out about it in the most bizarre way. I just can't even imagine at seven years old this kind of unfolding before you. But tell me that story and what it was like at that time for you. Well, the night of the assassination, I was asleep in bed and my mother, I remember her coming, rushing into the room and waking me up and going to my dresser and grabbing a whole bunch of clothes out of it and saying, we need to get up, we have to go. And I had no idea what was going on, but I carried whatever she threw into my arms downstairs and I actually fell back asleep waiting for my uncle to come pick us up. And mm-hmm. She basically said my father had been in an accident. And uh, That was how she phrased it at yeah, the time? Yeah, uh, that night. Because he was also injured in the attack. He was. Right? He, he was, was actually shot uh, trying to flee. And uh, and he and Meyer Kahana were rushed to the, the same hospital, Bellevue Hospital. Um, and Kahana died that night. <clears throat> um, so when my uncle got there, um, he took us to his apartment in Brooklyn, 
and by the time we got there, there were already two detectives waiting at his apartment. See, my father worked um, in in New York City and in, uh, for the city. So in order to do that, you had to live in one of the five boroughs. And he worked he, for the city. Yes. What did he do? Uh, he was an air conditioning. Uh, maintenance repairman. He was uh, educated as an engineer, uh, but when we moved to New Jersey, um, my uh, my uncle got him a job initially as an electrician, and then mm-hmm. he started working for the city. Um, but but in order to do that, he had to have an address in one of the five boroughs. So he used my uncle's address in Brooklyn. Gotcha. Uh, so there were detectives waiting at his apartment when we got there, and um, and actually the first few days my mother didn't really tell me what happened beyond that it was just an accident um, she went to see my father in the hospital that night thinking he was going to die that's what she heard that's how she found out i mean to me how she found out was so much more shocking than i did she was sitting at home while i was asleep in bed watching television and whatever show she was watching was interrupted by breaking news saying that Myrkon had been shot and so had his assailant and neither were expected to live and they cut to footage of my father covered in blood being put into an ambulance and this was her introduction to this ideology that my father had taken up. Before that, had she ever come into contact with anything else? Because obviously your father was having these conversations, was engaging Mm -hmm. a lot of this you know, ideology in in at least a conversational way mm-hmm. by attending the mosque he was, by associating himself with the people he was. I mean, his mentor, I think you mentioned, kind of someone of a mentor to him, mm-hmm. was later went on to be one of the founders of Al-Qaeda. So mm-hmm. was she aware of any of that? Well, this was then? the, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. So the Afghan war was coming to an end or close to it and my father very much wanted to go to Afghanistan to fight. I mean this is where you know, Muslims from all over the world were going to fight the communist infidels. And Did he say that to you? Uh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um and my and that mother was something that was presented as like a noble and good thing that Sure, you would well do. even even among Americans this wasn't something counter to uh you know American uh, ideals right. you know, fighting the Russians in Afghanistan. I mean we were secretly doing it for, you know for for some time. Um, so it wasn't counter to my mother's American ideals, uh, but nevertheless, she absolutely did not want my father going to fight in this war, um, as as any wife wouldn't. And uh, my grandfather actually came to the U.S. the summer before the assassination. Uh, he thought just to visit, but it was actually so that my father could try to convince him to take my family to Egypt so that my grandfather would take care of us while my father went to Afghanistan to fight. And my grandfather said, absolutely not. If you want to make jihad, stay here and take care of your family. Um, And I think because that option was cut off to him, he decided he was going to find some other way to contribute to this battle, as he saw it, between Islam and non-Muslims. And so this was the path he took. Let me ask you about the context in which you were growing up now, because you're an American kid. These are the conversations you're having with your father at home in the mosque, out on the shooting range, as you mentioned. And then you go to school, presumably, where this is not what you're being taught. It's basically contradictory to a lot of the lessons you learn in elementary and middle school at that age. So how did you, because even as a young kid, that has to present some kind of dissonance for you, right? How were you sort of reconciling that? Well, I think, um, you know, growing up, uh, with any culture or any religion that isn't perceived as normal in the United States, you're constantly trying to find a line between, you know, your parents' culture and the religion in which you're raised and being an American and American culture. And, um, 
you know, that was difficult for me, but I think it's difficult for anyone who uh, who doesn't fit into a very traditional idea of what it means to be American. Um, you know, for me, it's amazing what the arrogance of thinking that you're better than everybody else can do to um, to build a wall between you and people you may interact with every day. I mean, in class, you know, I I, I interacted with you know your average American kids, and um, but I, in the back of my mind, thought, well, you're not Muslim. You're not my kind of Muslim. Um, so it was. It was easy to be. It's always easy to be arrogant, I think. And um, you're saying you carried that arrogance around with you, sure. sort of in the back of your mind. Yeah. You were taught to view everybody else as less than you. Absolutely. In some way. Yeah. And um, and it wasn't really until, in a lot of ways, when my father went to prison, his the effect that he had on me was greatly reduced. Um, you know, we visited him for many years at Rikers Island and Attica and upstate New York and. We talked on the phone every week, and <clears throat> but eventually, those conversations just became very repetitive. And I was going through so much um, when when he went to prison. I was going to a public school in Cliffside Park, New Jersey, and they made it pretty clear that they didn't really want us to come back. And uh, the school, yes, and the community in general. I mean, we left our house that night and never came back. I had whatever I could carry in my hands, and that's all we had. Did you leave behind friends or neighbors you were in contact oh, yeah, with? Absolutely. Did you, I mean, did you ever talk to any of them again? No, no, I didn't. Uh, Not since the night you left. No, we left, and and we were so afraid. Uh, I mean, there were death threats coming from the JDL. Um, we had the FBI watching us. Well, not until um, not until later. Initially, it was just the NYPD investigating my father for the assassination. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, you know, the FBI was watching us, and they would come to our house every other year or so, two agents, and ask us questions, who we're in contact with, you know, who we've uh, who we've talked to, who we've been interacting with. Um, and it always felt like an interrogation, even though I never, you know, I never did anything. But, um, but so up until that point, your mother's been telling you there was an accident. Mm, sure. When do you realize that it was not at all an accident? When do you realize what your father's done? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think with my mother trying to cope with her life basically falling apart that she didn't ever sit me down and have a here are all the facts conversation. It was something that I kind of started to pick up. Um, I remember being in my uncle's apartment in Brooklyn and when the news would come on, they would rush all the kids out of the room. And I remember out of the corner of my eye seeing a picture of Khan on the television and a picture of my father and not really knowing anything. Uh, and it was... And sort of not being allowed to ask about it, right? Or could you? Did, did you try to I, get I feel answers? like I could have. I don't know that she made it like she didn't want to talk about it. But in a lot of ways, uh, she may have just in the interest of protecting me from, you know, this traumatic event. Um, and it, it wasn't really until I went back to school, my first day at Al-Ghazali, uh, the private school, uh, a private Islamic school in New Jersey offered mm-hmm. scholarships to myself and my siblings to go because we didn't have anywhere else to go. And um, my first day, I walked into my first grade class, and every single student jumped up and surrounded me and started just throwing questions at me. I felt like, uh, you know, the scenes in the movies where the the criminals coming out of the courthouse with his lawyers and their press all around them and yelling questions at them. And one kid, you know, was yelling, uh, "You know, did your father assassinate Kahana?" And I was, I was like, so 
shocked and uncomfortable by just being confronted with that question that I actually laughed. I didn't even know. Like, it was just an awkward laugh. I didn't even know how to answer it. And um, so a lot of the information that I got, I kind of got secondhand through people who had heard this or heard that. And, um, and it was also hard because there were people in the Muslim community who didn't want my family there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being associated with extremism, um, for a lot of people, they just, they just don't want it. And uh, and there were other people who thought that it was their responsibility to pr- to protect my my father's family, not because of what he'd done, but just because they saw us as, as innocent victims in in all of this. Um, and then there were other people who were very proud of what my father had done. I bought my first Game Boy with a hundred dollar bill that someone handed me because of what my father did. So there were a lot of mixed wow. signals about what's right and what's wrong. And, yeah. And. and when is violence okay and when is it not? And and my father declared his innocence for years. Mm-hmm. Um, before the World Trade Center bombing, he had maintained his innocence. And my mother believed him and, and I believed him. And even in the back of my mind, I thought to myself, well, Kahana is a, a bad person. He was a terrorist. He advocated for violence against Arabs and Muslims for no other reason than the fact that they were Arab or Muslim. Members of the JDL had committed horrible acts of violence against innocent men, women, and children. Um, so there was a justification in my mind for it. So I was going to ask, even at that <clears throat> age, because obviously you've been steeped in this, you've been raised in this ideology, even at that age, are you thinking, my father maybe did the right thing yeah, here? Yeah, absolutely. And we went to, uh, to Egypt the summer after the assassination, my family. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had armed protection by the Egyptian government. There were snipers on the rooftops around all the buildings of our house, soldiers in the lobby. A truck of soldiers followed us everywhere we went. We went to the pyramids. They gave us a private tour. There was just this very weird, you know, um, reverence by some people for my father and for what he did. Um, Starkly different to the way you were treated uh, yeah, in the U.S. absolutely. And... Um, you know, so it was it was confusing to me. But after after the World Trade Center bombing, that excuse of being a bad person was no longer possible. They had targeted innocent people. A pregnant woman was m- murdered by them um, in the bombing. So that excuse couldn't work anymore. How old were you then? Uh, I was 10 years old during the bombing. Uh, I was actually home sick from school. I believe it was a Friday. Um, I could be mistaken, but I think it was a Friday. And... Um, and many of the men who would eventually be involved in that bombing would often come to our house to check on us. And I think some of them felt it was their responsibility to protect my family because my father had sacrificed himself for this, uh, for this goal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and every Friday, um, because I went to a private Islamic school, they had Friday prayer there at the mosque. And, and uh, I would see Muhammad Salama, the man who rented the, the rider truck that the bomb was put into, uh, and he would always make it a point to come up to me, even though I was a little tiny kid, just to check on me and to talk to me. And These were your father's friends, yeah. right? These mm-hmm. were the men you called uncle. Yeah, them, well, right? my uncle Brahim, uh, I believe he and my father were cousins. He wasn't technically my, my legitimate right. uncle, but, you know, in the, in the Middle East, everyone's kind of uncle. uncle right? but, um, uh, yeah, so these were these were men who were who I think took it upon themselves just to check on my family. They didn't really do a whole lot besides that. But So at 10 years old, when do you draw the line between this horrific thing you're seeing unfolding on the TV screen and the man who is your father? How do you draw that connection? I'm not sure that I, that I really could. I, I knew that what, what happened was wrong, 
um, I knew that there was no justification for it. I knew that it was different from the assassination. Um, but even, you know, as I got older, I realized that there was no justification for either of them. I asked myself, what good came from Kana's assassination? Um, you know, unfortunately, his son and his son's wife and several of their children were killed in Israel mm -hmm. years later. Um, his grandson was arrested for committing hate crimes against Palestinians. Nothing changed. Um, nothing was made better. Um, and and so eventually, even the excuses that my young mind uh, accepted realized they were, you know, it was unacceptable. But how do you, because this is the part that fascinates me now, is a lot of people who, uh, even though you had limited sort of uh, direct um, influence under your father because you were so young when he went to prison, how do you keep that sort of grounding in the possibility that all those things you learned early on could maybe not be true? Where did that come from? Was that your mom? Was was that exposure to the outside world? Where did that come from? It was definitely both. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my mother always taught me, you know, your kind of uh, standard lessons about life, like don't judge a book by its cover and treat people the way you want to be treated. And, yeah. Um, and it wasn't really until I began interacting with people that I'd been taught these stereotypes about that I, that I even started to question what my father what my father had taught me. I mean, the first time I made a Jewish friend, I talk about it in the book and, and um, I think even a little bit in the TED Talk that I gave, uh, I was at a youth convention uh, in Philadelphia. I was living in Philly at the time. I think I was 16. And um, I'd been bullied very, very badly in school. Uh, initially, it was just attention from, you know, what my father had done. And, and, you know, kids don't really need a whole lot of reasons to bully you. But, um, you know, I was the chubby, quiet kid. I didn't... <clears throat> I didn't really like to draw too much attention to myself, and I think some people liked it. Felt it was easy to draw attention to me instead of to themselves, and yeah. um, so I was always getting into fights, and and um, and it was it was very hard. But um, um, essentially, I'm sorry, I just lost my. That's okay. You were mentioning some of the people. This was actually a part of your story that fascinated me because the people that you came into contact with, who sort of challenged oh, yes, the things. Yeah that you had been taught. What struck me about the way you've talked about it was really, and I mean no offense by this, just how mundane and like boring those interactions were. There was no big like interfaith summit no, or program um, or something. You were just a kid mm, meeting other kids. And so I went to this youth convention and I, be I got onto this panel about youth violence, which was something that I was very passionate about because I'd been bullied so much. And, um, and maybe three days into it, this kid that I'd, you know, started to become very close with and, and, you know, as close as you can in three days. Uh, I, we were walking around Philadelphia and, and he mentioned that he was Jewish. And it was like a shock to me because I, I had always thought that, you know, Muslims and Jews were natural enemies that we, you know, we just never got along. And you honestly, were 16 I, mm -hmm. and I was the first person you'd ever consider to be a friend. I, Jewish. I lived um, such an unstable life. I mean, I, I moved on average every nine months. Uh, I Probably by then I'd been in maybe 10 different schools. Um, a lot of them were private Islamic schools because my mother was a teacher and she moved wherever she could find work. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes these were private Islamic schools and it was cheaper for me to go there, so I would go there. Um, 
you know, I, I lived a very sheltered life. We also were very poor, so I lived in terrible neighborhoods, and my mother didn't really like me being outside a lot. So I read a lot, and and I, you know, I didn't interact with people too yeah. much. And so I found out that this kid was Jewish, and and my first feeling, I felt a great sense of pride because I thought I had done something that nobody had ever done before. Um, you know, which is of course ridiculous, but when you when you you're that sheltered, you you don't know any better. Did he um, know who you were? No, no, absolutely not. By then, I'm trying to think if I changed. No, I hadn't changed my name by then. But um, actually, no, I think I may have. I don't know. It's very strange the things you forget along your life, like yeah. when you changed your name. I was born up, but I was easy to say in the But I changed my name to Zach Ibrahim when I was 16 or 17 to uh, just to hide my identity from people. And what um, is it like for you today to say the name you were born with? Um, I don't know. I like I like my name. It's uh, it's uh, the weird thing for me was always just getting used to Zach. I mean, people would say my name and I wouldn't respond because I just wasn't used to responding to it. Or, you know, I would, uh, um, yeah, I just I you know, it was it was always weirder for me just to get used to my my new name. But it's been yeah. so long, and uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't feel weird about saying my old name. It, does it feel like, like you're talking about somebody else? Or no. No? No, just uh, maybe younger me. That's it. And how did you pick the name Zach? Uh, well, my nickname was Z because most people can't say I'm an Aziz. So, <laughs> uh, so I wanted to keep my nickname. So I, I chose Zachariah um, uh, just so I keep my nickname. Really. Yeah. <laughs> That's simple. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm sorry, I cut you off. You're telling the story about how you, you made these friends who sort of challenged everything you'd been taught when you were growing up. And that moment when that happens for you, is that just like, is that just shock? Is that like a, a punch to the gut? What is that like? It wasn't. It was like a little chink in the armor. Um, for me, it was the first hint that maybe what I believed was wrong. And and it snowballed from there. Each person that I interacted with who you know each type of or kind of person i mean the first time i made a gay friend um i was not nice to this person um, you weren't what no. did you say you? I, it wasn't it wasn't so much like me you know cursing at them or anything like that it was just kind of treating them like i was better than them and and this young man showed me kindness when he had zero reason to and because I had been bullied so much in school, I was very familiar with what it was like to be treated poorly for things that I had no control over, either because of my my father's actions or because I was the new kid or because I was quiet or for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. I was so familiar with what it felt like to be bullied that it was like slapping myself in the face, realizing that I was doing to this kid exactly what had been done to me a thousand times. And I didn't want to ever make anybody feel the way I had been made to feel. And that's when I really had to start challenging myself and what I believed and how I perceived people. But uh, where did that come from? That's another thing that fascinates me because a lot of times people who are bullied will then just go on to bully other people or people who are taught to hate will then find a reason to hate other people. How did you at 16 or 17 find a reason to say, wait, maybe the things I held to be true aren't true? My life had sucked for so long. Um, it was so hard, um, always moving, always being bullied. And it wasn't just name calling. It was just beatings constantly. I mean, every other day on average for 10 years, I was getting into a fight with somebody. And I never started one of them, not once. 
and you were exhausted. It took, I, I was. I was so tired. It took so much energy to hate people who had done nothing to me. And I had a conversation with my mother. I said, you know, I don't want to not like people because they're Jewish. I don't want to not like people because they're gay. And and she said to me, I'm tired of hating people. And when she said that to me, it just clicked in my head. Like, it takes so much energy to hate people who you've never met. I mean, uh, let alone, you know, people that you you interact with. Um, and And to separate myself from kind people um, just seemed it didn't make any sense to me and um, you literally got tired of hating people yeah and and when she said that to me it was like she gave me permission to go out into the world and experience people unencumbered by the prejudices I had been taught and so that's what I did I went out and started interacting just without judging people and and it kind of became my 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 goal to meet as many kinds of people and and just to if you were kind i wanted to be your friend it was really that easy and i and it was so much easier to make friends um when you're not judging people because of the color of their skin or their religion or their sexuality you know i mean it's I just, I didn't want to live in that world anymore. It was so hard and, um, and it was so much better on the other side. I mean, you know, so that, that's, and I think I learned that honestly from being bullied. Like I said, I, I was so familiar with that feeling mm -hmm. for years and, <clears throat> and I, I refused to perpetuate it. I just didn't want to do it. And, um. And, I, you know, in it was the hardest thing of all the things I've gone through. Bullying was the hardest thing that I've ever had to deal with. Um, but I think it taught me more about myself and about how I should interact with the world than anything else. Meanwhile, your father's serving out uh, a life sentence. You're in contact with him for a number of years. Yeah. Right. And mm -hmm. then at the age at which you decide to change your name and cut off all ties, you stop contact. Yes. For the better part of a decade mm -hmm. or so, right? Yes. Did you reinitiate contact? Did he reach out to you? Are you in contact now? Uh, he reached out to me. Um, actually, the first time I ever spoke uh, publicly, I was um, I was on the cover of the Philadelphia Daily News the morning that I was flying to um, to Texas mm -hmm. to give a speech at a peace conference, Student Peace Alliance's uh, annual convention. And how old are you at this point? Uh, I was I was in my mid twenties, I think twenty six, maybe something like that, twenty seven. And you and, haven't spoken to him since you were 16, 17? Yeah, since I was, I think, 17. Um, and Does he know that you're out there denouncing him? Well, that's the thing. Um, I was on the cover of the Daily News. It was, like, all over the airport, which was hilarious because they said you might be on the cover. And then I'm in the airport at 6 o'clock in the morning, and my whole face is the cover, and it says, my father, the terrorist, on it. And I'm thinking, thank God my flight is it. 5.30, not 10.30 in the morning because there's, like, no one here and there's just walls of my face. What's that um, like for you, by the way, to see your face with that headline? I should lose weight. Um, you know, I, I was... I consider every single time that I get to do an interview or a speech or talk to anyone as a privilege. I'm so lucky that I get to to share my life and that people are interested in it and that someone might get something from that. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, uh, like I get 
criteria, just thinking about how lucky I am that I get to do this. And um, you so know, you're so at the airport. I'm at the airport. You've been and speaking out against your father, against everything you've been taught growing up. Yeah, and I, I go to this convention. First time I ever spoke publicly, I, I got up on stage. I spoke for like 20 minutes, and I got a standing ovation. There were people crying, and it was just an incredible experience for me. And by the time I got back to my hotel that night, there was an email from one of my father's lawyers saying that, they saw the paper and that my father's been looking for me for years. He wants to get in contact with you. And I was so freaked out that I didn't even respond to it. Um, and she, the, the lawyer said, you know, I support what you're doing. Um, and I still didn't respond. And, you know, honestly, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be in contact with my father. Um, and at that point, I didn't even realize how much animosity I actually had toward my father because of everything that I had to deal with as a result of him going away. When you decided to cut off contact, was it a deliberate, you say to him, I don't want to talk to you anymore? No, I don't. uh, Just My mother remarried, and um, my stepdad, unfortunately, was very physically and emotionally abusive. And and in many ways, he was the opposite of my father, um, and then similar in other ways. I mean, in the sense that... um, my stepfather was a Muslim, but he was a Muslim in, in name only. I mean, he practiced zero tenets of Islam unless he was in front of other Muslims, and um, and and he took great um, he took, in my opinion, glee in physically hurting me, and um, um, and it was just such a hard time in my life, and I, I resented my father. Um, you know, we would have these same conversations when it got to be too expensive or we moved too far away to be able to visit my father. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we would have these weekly conversations and I was going through so much and the conversations were always the same. You know, are you being good to your mother? Are you, are you, um, you know, are you making your prayers and uh, you need to do this and you need to do that. And, and eventually it just got to the point where I thought, well, you know, if you really cared about me and and about my life being good maybe you should have stuck around and then in all those conversations did you ever say to him how could you have done this i was by the way i made a jewish friend like i don't think gay people are bad anymore did did you say any of that to him no i was uh i was probably too afraid to confront my father about it and uh and just disenchanted with our conversations it was like a chore for me um, by the end. Um, and so, you know, we decided we wanted to start a new life and we were going to change our names. We were going to disconnect contact from my father and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and just try to start over. So that was, that was basically why, uh, why I changed my name and ended communication with him. Have you been in touch with him recently? Uh, not super recently. Um, Eventually, I got an email from the Bureau of Prisons saying that an inmate would like to begin communication with me. And, of course, it was my father. And um, it said I had 10 days to decide yes or no. And I knew before I started speaking that I did want to get back in contact with my father, if only to, to confront him, like you were saying about, you know, how my beliefs changed. And, and But more importantly, how his actions affected my family, especially my mother, who had mm-hmm. been through so much. And so I clicked yes, um, and we began these communications, and I very naively thought that I was going to ask him these questions that I had thought about for much of my life, and he was going to answer them openly and honestly, and I was going to have some kind of revelation, and um, and it, it, it just didn't work out that way. He was in the process of appeals, 
um, saying that uh, that the prosecution had violated his constitutional rights and he was trying to have his sentence thrown out. So there mm. was not only was I now back in contact with him, but there was this potential that he might actually get out of prison. And um, what did you think of that when you considered it? It was it was a scary. It was scary for me. Not that I feared him, uh, you know, that he would cause me violence or anything like that. It was just you get used to an idea um, like your father will be in prison for the rest of your life. And then the idea that he might get out and you're not on the best of terms with him and you don't really know how that's going to affect your relationship or, or your life. Um, you know, it was kind of nerve wracking for me a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so because he was in the process of appeals, he couldn't really, I don't think, have a very candid con conversation with me. I mean, he couldn't. Um, you're sort of viewing everything through the lens of, well, this is all towards an end. Yeah. Right? Um, and I wanted to hear it from his mouth because he had, he had declared his innocence to my mother, um, you know, the first time we went to Rikers Island to visit him. And then for years after, I wanted to hear it from him that he had just to admit it and, and, and to take responsibility for it. And I wanted him to understand how, how hard it was for everyone in our family because of what he had done. And he, he basically sent me a very long winded confusing almost riddle uh, because he couldn't really be candid with me in the middle of these appeals um, that really didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I honestly don't even remember very much. I mean, I still have the emails, but I, I it was just a very long kind of convoluted story, mm -hmm. examples of, well, you know, um, you know, a person does this for this reason and yada, yada. And, Not um, really taking... No, ownership no, not at all. And, responsibility. <clears throat> and when he found out that I was no longer a Muslim, the conversation kind of became fixated on that. And when I told him that about... That had devastating for him. I imagine so. I mean, it was the hardest conversation I ever had with my was mother. Was that over email? Was, or? It was yeah. that I told him, yeah. Um, and he kind of became fixated on that and just said, well, if you return to Islam, that all of your problems will be solved. And you know, which is not something that an atheist wants to hear, really. And um, and uh, it was just hard for me. At the time, I was in the middle of writing my book, and, you know, people talk about writing being like therapy, and, and I think eventually it does become that. But for the longest time, sitting down and writing about the worst experiences of your life just sucks. So... Um, it was just too much for me mentally to be in communication with him and to be trying to write down these stories and think about just all of the horrible things that happened to me as a result of his actions. And um, so I, I ended communication. Are you open to seeing him? I am. Um, Do you hope to? You want to? You know, that's the hardest thing for me. I, I feel like... I was um, I was in Greece last year, and I was um, I think about this question all the time, and it's amazing how I can go back and forth on it because I was sitting in my hotel thinking about whether I should go see my father, and and I thought to myself, you know what? I think I'm finally at a place where I don't need to go see him. And the next day, I'm I'm doing a panel and. I'm listening to a person in the audience just talk. And she was talking about, um, um, you know, an extremist and, and how he had committed this act of violence. Um, 
But when we look at how these problems come about, it you know we have to look at it systemically. It's very rare. It, you know, it's very rarely just one person who decides to act out for no reason at all. There's usually a lot of um, you know kind of background reasons that that they've decided to take this path. And, sure. and I thought I try so hard to understand why somebody can be compelled to do this in the name of an ideology um, to the point not at all that I sympathize with what they do but I think that you have to understand it in order to try to find a solution to it and I mm-hmm. thought I'm trying so hard to try to understand why these these men do what they do that I never really extended that to my father Um, Although I always thought about it, I always talked about it, but I never applied that empathy um, to him. Why not? Maybe I was too close, um, you know, to him and and maybe because it hurt me so much directly um, as opposed to something you're just reading articles about or reading a book about. Um, and, And I just remember sitting there thinking yesterday I was like, I'm finally good to not have to see him and now i'm like damn maybe i do like have to go see him and i so i I go back and forth on it a lot i i i'm at the point where i feel that that i do want to um you know not you know it's very strange for someone to have affected your life in such a negative way you know when it's your parent who you just naturally want to love and Mm -hmm. naturally want to have a good relationship with but they caused you so much pain it's so hard to balance those feelings i mean my father did so much to make my life hard and yet i feel tremendous guilt for not responding to his emails or you still feel that not, really not going to see him in prison i feel like i'm making his life worse because i won't have a relationship with him just as a son mm-hmm. to yeah. his father uh-huh. but here's what strikes me that i i can't get my head around because you've you've described him as a kind and a hands-on um a dad with like a great sense of humor growing up most people don't know him that way And there's a huge, very thick line between feeling a certain way about an ideology and then actually taking someone else's life. Absolutely, absolutely. Or knowingly participating in activities that could have potentially killed so many more than actually died that day Mm -hmm. in 1993. There is something there that's different and unique and not not the norm for the majority of the world's population, right? Most people don't do those things. Mm -hmm. How do you, as his son who knew him in this very personal way, how do you reconcile that? I think that it's perfectly possible for someone to have the deepest love in their heart and also be able to commit terrible acts of violence against people that they hate. Um, I don't think that two feelings in a human being um, can't, you know, two what we would consider to be completely opposite emotions exist in a person at the same time i just you see it constantly i think you know how we can empathize with a certain group of people and then completely delegitimize the the needs or or um 
the humanity of another group of people. I think it's perfectly possible to have completely opposing views in your own mind um, as a human being. And Don't you think that's dangerous? I, you know, honestly, I'm not sure that that question is necessarily all that relevant. It's just kind of the way that it is. I think that human beings are extraordinarily complicated and that it's possible to hold completely opposing views in your mind at the exact same time. Do you think your father holds the same views today that he did back then? I, I can't be 100% sure, but I doubt it. Um, you do, really? I do. Um, I think, you know, 25 plus years in prison. Um, oh my God, has it been more than that? Um, yeah. How old is he now? He is, um, he was born in 55, so that would make him 61. Am I doing that right? 61 or 67? He was born 66. when? 55. We'll do nothing. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't think, I think that he's probably softened in his views. I mean, I can't, I can't Just be with age, certain about that. Well, uh, with age, maybe by having to acknowledge the consequences of his actions mm. and the effect or, or lack of an effect, intended effect that they had on society or on people. I mean, these acts have done so much to destroy the perception of Islam and Muslims in communities outside of the Middle East or outside of Muslim communities. Uh, you know, my father's actions, the, the actions of men like Osama bin Laden have ruined the way people perceive Muslims all over the world. Um, and I, I would hope that after all this time in prison, you would come to that conclusion and realize that you were wrong for what you did and that nothing was made better from that. And And then you're left with regret. And I don't know what decades of regret eventually you know, turns into, um, not being with your family. Um, you know, I, I'm not really, I, I don't know why he might, um, you know, I, there was, a, he did an article a few years ago at the LA times and, and he mentioned me in it and how I've basically disowned his, you know, whole belief system, I think, including the religion. Um, he also mentioned that he wants to be in contact with you. Yeah. Um, and it seemed like in the interview, he, much of his views had softened. And, and you know, but I, you know, who knows? I, maybe he at the same time that was part of an appeal, right? He yeah. was at the time trying yes. to force to, to be repopulated with the general prison population. Yeah, right? and uh, yeah, he and many of the men had been in solitary for so long. Um, and and you know, that's another example of just sh like strange having to hold strange beliefs. Like I, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for prison reform. Um, you know, I, I realize my father is there for a reason. I realize that, um, that he's going to be there for the rest of his life. But I don't think that, uh, I think spending years and years in solitary confinement is torture. Um, and I don't think that anyone should have to deal with that. Um, you know, so it's just, you know, opinions that I, I, I guess most people don't, have to contemplate or when they do they can be disconnected from them and for me it's just it feels very intimate because i have someone who's you know dealing with those kinds of things i feel like my father deserves to be where he is but at the same time that he you know that he and, and other prisoners shouldn't shouldn't have to be uh shouldn't have to be tortured 
while they're there. I think it's bad enough that they're locked in a cell for the rest of their lives and that you know they don't get to have relationships with their families and things like that. I think that in many ways that's punishment enough, but I, I suppose I'm not really the one to make that decision. You mentioned you are now, you self-describe as an atheist, yes. right? Mm -hmm. um, was there sort of deliberate rejection of the religion that gave the motivation to your father to commit those horrific acts, or was it something else entirely? I'm sorry, I don't... What do you mean? Why exactly? did you leave? You, you were raised Muslim. Yes. In yeah. a very strict sense in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Sure. Um, not in the casual sense that a lot of other people <laughs> can be raised sometimes, but you, you deliberately left that. This was not like, okay, I'm now not really practicing. You now say I'm no longer Muslim. Yeah. Well, um, for much, for years after, um, I had understood that what my father believed was well outside of mainstream interpretation of Islam, I was still very much a devout Muslim. The reason that I left Islam had nothing to do with my father's actions. I just, um, to me, the, really? I, I, you know, people, I find that very hard to believe. I, uh, like many people, I just lost my faith. I have a hard time believing in an infinitely wise and omnipotent being that would create us the way that we are and then judge us for an eternity for being that way. I just, for me, that seems like all it has all of the the traps of a very human idea um and and I look at at people all over the world who believe in completely different beliefs um, but believe it just as passionately as as anybody else in any other belief and i i just um I just didn't believe you know anymore I just lost my faith um but you know having said that i also i, I don't hate people who you know belong to any particular religion and in fact I think the only solutions to problems will come when we are able to come together um, to find you know solutions to these problems uh, the fact there are so many atheists who rail against religion and anyone who believes and I think that that's such a waste of time because the fact of the matter is the vast majority of people in the world believe in it um, and you have to work together in order to find, you know, solutions to these goals. I'm not about putting up walls. I don't believe, but you can believe. I've been very fortunate to get to interact with incredible people, a very devout faith. I got to share the stage with one of my heroes, Archbishop Desmond Tutu at Oxford University. And, and just getting to shake his hand and sit next to him was an amazing experience for me. Um, many of my heroes were very devout. Uh, people, so I, I um, devout and not devout. Um, you know, so I'm just I'm about breaking down walls. So I, I'm not trying to separate myself from anybody else. You've written about your whole story in in the book a couple of years ago, a terrorist son, a story of choice. Um, you now spend most of your time, it's fair to say, um, speaking on this, engaging on this, working mm -hmm. on tolerance and and um, combating hate um, issues. How is this your life's work now? How do you make a living? Like, is this what you see yourself doing now? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been very fortunate. I started speaking uh, probably about seven years ago, and, and I, I didn't start to be able to do it full time until maybe three years ago or mm -hmm. so. But, um, you know, like I said, I feel very lucky every day that, that people have an interest in, in hearing my story and, and hopefully gleaning something from it. I, I knew that there was value in, in what I had experienced and the lessons that I learned from them um, and, you know, that I might get to 
to inspire someone or, or to make someone think from a perspective that they hadn't thought of before. Mm -hmm. I, I can't tell you how many times people say, I never considered the impact that it had on the family of those who commit these kinds of acts. Um, and that was part of my goal, was to show people just a different perspective and maybe expand their understanding of, of what it means to be radicalized. Or, or, you know, the reason that I wrote that book was because I wanted to show people not just that I was radicalized and how I was radicalized, but what experiences I had that brought me out of it. And, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I thought that there was a lot of value in that. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel very lucky that I get to do it. Do you feel in any way that you are somehow trying to fix the wrongs that your father committed? You know, if you asked me that a few years ago, I probably would have said yes. Um, I felt like I had making up to do. Um, and I'm not so sure anymore. I, th I think that it's not anyone's responsibility to say, you know, it's not a Muslim's responsibility to say I'm not a terrorist. It is not, um, you know, I, I think it's everyone's responsibility to try to make the world a little bit better than it was when they got here. Um, and if everybody did that, then the world would be a lot better. So I, you know, uh, I'm fortunate that I get attention for something that my father did that was really terrible. And, and I knew that, you know, how many, how many you know, sons of terrorists get to go on Fox and Friends and tell them, you know, that this is not the religion, um, even though they make it a point to to say that I'm an atheist, um, you know, so that it's like, okay, well, he's a he's for nonviolence, but he's not a Muslim anymore. Um, I get attention because of what my father did. When a Muslim stands up and says this is not my religion, people don't really care. They don't really listen. But when the son of a terrorist does it. People pay attention, and, and I'm fortunate to have that. That is a privilege for me, and I'm going to try to use it to the best of my ability to draw attention to things that I think um, need fixed. Zach Ibrahim, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having time. me. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. Each of our episodes is now available on the TuneIn app. TuneIn is a free mobile audio app available across iOS, Android, and Windows. Download it for free today and listen to the latest episodes of Uncomfortable five days before they're released. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and at abcnews.com. And if you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we have made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. And if you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews. Or you can tweet at me, at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N. Or use our hashtag, Uncomfortable Talk. Uncomfortable is a product of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. And don't forget, episodes are released five days early on the TuneIn app. I'm Amna Navaz. Thanks for listening.